Like many of you, I'm curious about several topics, and what better way to learn than to speak directly with the people who have the answers that you're looking for? My name is Costa. Welcome to Founder Views. That's what this channel is all about. You're going to hear me pick the brains of thought leaders, CEOs, politicians, and business experts about subjects that I'm thinking about or working on at any given time. From economics, business, real estate investing, Bitcoin, lifestyle, politics, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Chris, actually, I don't, I don't even think I, I told you this, but you are the reason why I stumbled onto this infinite banking concept in the first place. Um, our, our first uh, podcast, you're on a previous podcast of mine for, for a company, my previous company, um, first time on this podcast. But after that episode, we recorded, started following you on Instagram. Uh, and started seeing some of your content come in and, uh, you know, I was noticing some things on like becoming your own banker, uh, infinite banking. And honestly, it never really like, I, I never really paid too much attention to it after, but there was this one post in particular, I think it was a reel or something. Uh, you had your, I think it was like top five books everyone should read. And I one of those, one. yeah, one of those books was, uh, becoming your own banker by Nelson Nash. And for whatever reason it was timing. I don't know what it was, but when I saw the cover of that book and like the title, um, I, I ordered it right away. I was like, this sounds really interesting. I bought it and I started reading it that night. And like, that was my entry into the infinite banking rabbit hole. And since then it, it's, uh, it's been nonstop. I've just been trying to inform as many people as possible about this concept. So uh, that's why I wanted to uh, have you on again. So I want to say thank you for uh, for putting out that content and introducing me to the concept in the first place. Oh, man, it's my honor and privilege. <laughs> that's that's why I do what I do. You know, just yeah. try to get people to change, you know, the dynamic of their financial futures for themselves and then hopefully for their children. Yeah. I mean, that's been a really big passion project. I mean, now that I've got an almost three year old, you know, trying to get this next generation to understand that. Cause like we got to, something's got to give here. So, you know, people can't keep relying on the system. Uh, we're seeing major cracks in the system and you're seeing it right now more than ever. I mean, SVB and then, you know, Republic bank and, and the, um, all these banks, this is just the start of it. People totally. gotta take back control of their money. I mean, if they don't, it's, it's just over. I don't even know how else to say it anymore. Couldn't agree more. Uh, totally on the same page. So, so I, like yourself, I've been on a kind of on a, my own mission since then with no financial stake, like really just to inform as many people as possible about this concept. Like I said, I have no skin in the game other than just having my own personal um, policies for myself and my family. But I just strongly believe that so many people could benefit from this. So. So that's what I'm hoping to uh, get from this conversation is just to hopefully perk up some ears and get more people uh, into this thing. You mentioned S, S um, Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, crazy, huh? What, what's your kind of take on it? It's interesting to see different like perspectives on this. You, have, it, you almost seem to have like one group who is kind of like begging for, for uh, help from the government. And then the other side, uh, kind of, you know, the whole like moral hazard free market type of perspective. Uh, where are you sitting on that? Well, I mean, I just did, um, you know, a YouTube video on this this morning. 
And, um, you know, I, I got a deep take on it. I mean, first off, I know exactly why they ran into the problems that they did. I mean, like down to the finite stuff that most people don't need to know, but it really has to do with Fed actions, the bank making some dumb decisions on, you know, where they put their tier one capital. They, they bet against the Fed raising rates and that bit them in the butt. But even in a normal circumstance, that bet from any bank in, in if we, you know, we want to highlight everything on, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, and we want to think, oh, that's just because they're a venture capital bank. That's just startups and those those tech guys. No, no, this is every bank in this country that does this. Banks have always done this with their tier one capital because they want their money working for them. But what the Fed's doing with raising rates to slow inflation down is having some major impacts, uh, and and it's not working. It's not working because people are employed. So when we get back to the bank, the one thing that was the nail in the coffin for Silicon Valley. It isn't so much what they did with bonds, isn't so much that they sold those bonds at a $1.5 billion loss because they had to sell them at the wrong time, at the wrong end of the cycle of bonds. And really what it came down to is the media. The media going out there and, and scaring people, which is what the media is really good at doing, and creating, you know, I, I don't want to say it was a false run on the bank, but it was it was a definitely highlighted run on the bank and Silicon Valley Bank is large in tech and venture capital. And as we all know, if you've been paying attention, the tech industry and the venture capital industry has not been good lately. So a lot of those companies are really starved for cash. A lot of those companies, you know, really weren't making big deposits in the bank. They had money in the bank, but they weren't making new deposits, which the bank relies on because the bank ties their money up, you know, two to 10 years in treasuries. And during that two to 10 year bet, if you will, the bank is relying on new deposits to float liquidity because banks only have roughly about a 10% liquidity factor, if even that. I mean, yeah. in this case, it was significantly less. So when the news came out and everything broke about this, everybody rushed in to take all their money out, you know, and that's what created this problem. That's why the regulators stepped in and froze the bank, shut the bank down. And then over the weekend, they had their emergency meetings, which then now the government steps in, the almighty government steps in with the Fed's backing. They're going to print more money. They're going to make all the depositors whole, which, listen, part of me, so that's where I'm like 50-50. Yeah. Do I think all depositors should be made whole? I understand why they're doing it, because if they didn't, like that shows the systemic risk throughout the entire banking system. So they had to. But do I agree with that? Listen, I think everybody understands what the FDIC is. It's $250,000 insurance on your deposits at the bank. But if you've got $2 million at one bank, shame on you. Shame on you. And I, and I get it. These were businesses. So they had large sums of money because they're tech startups and, you know, venture capital. So they got large sums of money, but they could have, they could have diversified that among many banks, but they didn't. So, you know, again, I'm 50, 50. Do I think some people should, do I think that should have been made an example so that people don't make dumb mistakes like that partly, but then do I think the government had to do that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, you, you hear, it's like, you know, now's not the time to have this moral hazard discussion. Like there's too many people that are gonna, you know, Dude, too the many world businesses. has gotten but like, soft. But like, when is the right time? You know, what, you know, what does that even mean? Like, at what point do we continue this kind of like charade with the banking system? And, you know, 
So it's uh, yeah, it's a, it the banking a tough system is broken. I mean, it's uh, why I'm so passionate about teaching people to be their own bank. I mean, you know this. You know, it's 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 not because I'm out there just saying, oh, be your own bank. You know, I, I am making it cool with logo and in culture and everything else. But like literally, there, there's a deep deep reason I'm teaching this, and and you can see why now. I mean, you can see why banks. Listen, if we go back in time, we go back to the Great Depression. Banks weren't the safe place. If we go before that, it's the reason the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds back in their day, they were bankers, you know, in a roundabout way. They're bankers or surround themselves with bankers and they didn't trust banks, which is why they landed at giant mutually owned insurance companies and how they created what we all benefit from today and are in a kind of Nelson Nash came up with the infinite banking concept, but they were doing this well before that. And really what they were using insurance companies for is just a safe place to store their capital. The same thing we do today, we do it a little bit differently than what they did, but we do the exact same thing because that's a safer place. Insurance companies do not use fractional reserve banking. They do not make money out of thin air. They have all the money. Banks do not. You just saw, like, listen, one little run on one, I'm not going to say it's a little bank, but $210 billion in assets. One run showed this, the, the, the weaknesses, the cracks in the foundation of the entire banking system. This isn't about SVB. This is about the banking system. This is about fractional reserve banking. And this is about the, the mistakes that we have all made, including the government has made. And now we're seeing that. And if anyone thinks that just because the government waves their magic wand and says, oh, every depositor is going to be made whole, made whole, right there, where do you draw the line then? If everybody's going to be made whole, even though it was their fault, where, where's the next line get drawn? And when the next bank goes down, because we're now at three, and actually I haven't looked at the news all morning, but it's, it's going to be more. No. You know, as more and more banks see more and more runs on the bank, yes, the Fed and the government's going to give them short-term loans and take their treasuries as collateral. But it, it is, I just don't know when we're going to wake up from this false reality that we're living in, thinking that, oh, everything's good. Nothing's good right now. And we are going to go deep into a recession. And this just, this recession has the makings of being the next Great Depression. I'm not trying to be Mr. Doom and Gloom, but you can see what's happening. The yeah. two-year and the 10-year bond, the inverted yield curve, tells the entire story, always has. This is the eighth time since World War II that the, the yield curve has inverted. And, the, and just for your audience, if we're recording, that means that you can buy a two-year bond. And, and you heard this is, ties right into SVB. You can buy a two-year bond right now, and it pays you a higher interest rate than buying a 10-year bond. Now, think about that. You put your money with the government for 10 years, or you put your money in with the government for two years. Which one do you think should pay you more? The 10-year, of course, but the two-year pays you more. And what that is, is that is a, if you were in a nuclear reactor, and all the warning bells were going off that like, there's a problem, like all the sirens and all the things, that's what's going on here. The two years should never be more than the 10. I mean, it just makes logical sense, but it yes. is. And that's because the warning bells are going off saying that we're headed to a bad recession. And guess what? All the other times, seven times, this has happened since World War II, every single time has resulted in a recession. But yet you got you know, the talking heads in, in Washington and, you know, the politicians saying, oh, is, we're not going to have a recession. And you all know who I'm talking about. Those are the soft lies. Landing, right? Yeah, those are the lies you're being told. Soft landing. There will be no <laughs> soft landing. This thing's coming headfirst down and it's lost both its engines and the rudders are frozen. 
You tell me how you're going to soft land this thing. You can't, not at this point. And the Fed knows that. The Fed knows that. So right now, they're the Fed and the, the government are kind of at a stalemate. They really are. The government doesn't want a recession. The government doesn't, the government just wants to keep bailing things out because that's how they get their votes. And then you got the Fed that does want to stop inflation because that's their job. That's one of their main roles is monetary policy, which is interest rates and inflation. And the Fed is said openly, we're going to continue raising rates. We're going to create pain. We have to get inflation down to our target of two. And inflation's going back up. If anyone hasn't paid attention, we were coming down, but inflation's now going back up. And it is for one reason, one reason only. Employment. People are employed. And because of that, they're spending money. Go to a restaurant. Go to any restaurant. I just went, uh, I don't go out to restaurants that much anymore, but I just went to one. And I could not believe how many people were in there eating. Yeah. And then I, I've been paying attention. I drive by all the restaurants. They're all packed. And I can't believe how many people are out there spending the amount of money they are. And then when I look at the statistics and the data, and I see that people's savings has been halved since actually it's more than that. So people have less money now in savings. The average American household can't even afford a $10,000 emergency. I see credit card debts skyrocketing, going double digits up and you know setting records. So it tells me one thing. People are still spending money, but it's not their money. They're using credit cards now to support this false, like standard of living that we've created for ourselves during the pandemic and after when money was abundant and now money isn't so abundant. So now we just use credit saying, oh, well, that's okay. I'm employed. I can pay for the credit card payment until you're not employed. And that's next yeah. folks. That's next. It's so wild. I, I know it's a scary prospect for sure. For a lot, I think a lot of people are going to get blindsided um if not already and so i, I want to talk about um you, you mentioned so the two-year bond compared to the 10-year i, I want to if you can like dive into that for maybe people who who aren't too familiar so what's the consequence of uh the two-year bond being higher than the 10-year and like why is that a rare occurrence and like what would be the outcome of this well it's not so much that it's a consequence. It's just a, it's a warning. It's a signal. And, and what it's saying is that you're paid more in interest on a short term bond, which should pay you less. Cause I mean, Hey, like anything else, if you buy an investment for a short term, it should pay you less than an investment for the long term, Right. Mm -hmm. And just logical. So the fact that a 10 year pays you less than a two year basically means that it's inverted. And, and when I say inverted, I mean, just like anything else, invert what anything you want, like, you should not be paid more for short-term bonds than you should for long-term bonds or should not be paid more, but you are. And that is because going long-term for investors, think of institutions, going long on a bond means more risk. Hence, people aren't buying them, hence the yields lower. So people, you know, institutions are putting their money in short-term bonds, which is driving yeah. that price up, which is also, you know, there's, there's a whole nother side of this, which I'm not going to get into, but there's an incredible opportunity forming right now in the bond market. I've been, t I've been talking about it for the better part of a year, but you know, it, it's very evident right now. I mean, you might be kind of catching it at the tail end, but bonds move inversely to interest rates. So he here's, here's how I can explain that. Forget about the inverted yield curve. Let me just give you a bond lesson. This is like every advisor should know this, but none of them talk about it because there's no money in it, but everyone should in the series seven, securities license when i got that many many moons ago this was the number one thing in that in that licensing exam was teaching you this 
So right now, we all can agree on a couple things. We can agree that we know the Fed is raising interest rates to tackle inflation. So we know interest rates for at least the next year are going up. No other way but up. Now, if we just understand if interest rates go up, the adverse thing for bonds, so we just draw an X, is the price of bonds, treasury bonds, goes down. So if we go longer duration, if we go out 10 years or 30 years, that price drop is more severe than short term. So now as the interest rate goes up, the price of the bonds goes down. So let me just stop right there. Where do you want to invest your money? Says Warren Buffett, there's, there's three key things that every investor needs to understand to make money. Buy low, sell high, and don't lose money. That's it. Forget about all this other stuff. Just let's just focus on those key fundamentals. Buy low, sell high, don't lose money. So I just told you facts. Interest rates are going up. So the absolute certain fact is that the price of long-term bonds goes down. 10 and 30 year specifically are what I'm talking about. So if you were looking to buy an investment and you wanted the safest place you could put your money, would you go to a U.S. government bond that is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government? And right now, you know that they're buying. You can buy them lower and lower and lower as the Fed raises rates. So that would make a ton of sense. And it made sense to the banks. That's why they partly do that. But the problem is, is when you do that, you cannot, you cannot have a liquidity call, which the bank did. You can't all of a sudden be like, all right, we bought these bonds. We know what's going to happen next. And I'll get to that in a second. And then all of a sudden have to sell them at a loss that would be selling low and you don't want to sell low. You want to what? buy low. So we're going to buy bonds really cheap right now, which I have been and everybody on here should be as well. The next phase. So we're going into a recession newsflash, if anyone doesn't know that. And we'll get into like the infinite banking concept and how this all plays into this. But this is an important lesson. When we go into a recession and the Fed gets the, the inflation down to where it is, and it will take them breaking the back of the American workers. What, what do I mean by that? Well, quite literally, it means they have to slow employment down. So how do you slow employment down? You kill the economy, you destroy the economy, which slows everything down. You're already seeing it at the top, you're seeing it in tech, you're seeing it in logistics, which is a leading indicator, meaning if you wanna know where we're going, look at trucking, look at logistics, look at railroaders, they're all slowed down. Okay, what's not slowing down? Hospitality, airlines, restaurants, service. Because why? Well, because we were locked up for a couple of years. So people are out there getting revenge for how many years they were locked up. They're like, oh, I want to go enjoy things. I wasn't able to. Great. So you're not seeing it there. You got to look at the leading. When we go into this recession and people are laid off and everybody's screaming, oh my God, I don't know what to do. There's going to be a unique thing that's going to happen. You mark my words. It happens every time. I'm not making this up. It's just fact. The Fed will do the opposite of what they're doing today, which is raising rates, they will drop rates. So now if we understood that X, right? Price and interest rates go up, price comes down. So now let's flip it. Now interest rates are coming down. What do you think happens to the price? It goes up. And how do you make a lot of money? You just wait for that. And then you sell yeah. high. That is a risk-free return on your money. And the only thing you gotta do is understand it, number one, and wait for it, number two. And if you're SVB, you're on the right track, but you just couldn't wait for it because it was a run on a bank. They needed a liquidity. They had to sell those bonds at the wrong time when the price was going down. Whoops, $1.5 billion loss, and they won't be the only ones. So I just showed you all how to make money the same way as all big institutions know how to make it. And the rest is up yeah. to you.
Okay. Yeah. So that's a, that's a perfect segue. I think, uh, I think a lot of people right now need to start taking more accountability for themselves and, and just taking more control out of their life, you know, and their, their finances and then their family. Right. Um, so how does all this play in relate to infinite banking then? Yeah. So it really, what infinite banking is, is, is quite simple. A lot of people want to make it, you know, when I say infinite banking to people, what they think of is they immediately, their mind says, oh, that's a whole life policy. Wrong. Infinite banking is a process. It is not a product. We'll talk about the whole life policy, but it's a process. So first let's focus on what process is the infinite banking concept. Simple. It's the process of you taking back the banking functions in your life. Oh, and some people that's still above their head. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, I don't know what the word would be, but let me, let me dissect that one more. Here's a simple thing. So let's say you got credit cards and most people do. You got a credit card and I don't know, let's just peg it at 5,000 bucks you owe. It's a visa. You paying a hundred bucks a month. That's your minimum payment. And the interest rate's 25%. Pretty common scenario. Most American households would probably be able to say, yeah, I got one of those. Yep. Okay. So now here's the thing for the infinite banking concept to work. You have to do what a bank does. You have to mimic what a bank does. Now visa is a bank in a roundabout way. So we have to just mimic what they do. So let's come over to the other side. First off, if you were going to mimic a bank, the first thing you'd have to do is you'd have to save money. And that would be one of the first laws of wealth. And first law of wealth says you should save 10% of the money you make. So now I, and let's not get into where the money goes yet. I'm going to show you a better place to say that. But right now, let's just take the money that we save and let's let's just assume that money's sitting in a bank account somewhere, hopefully not SVB. And now we got a credit card over on this side that we're paying 25% every single year on and 100 bucks a month is leaving our household forever. But yet we got all this money sitting over here in the bank earning next to nothing. I, and I know that sounds silly, just me saying that. Like, why would somebody have money in a bank account paying them one to two when they're paying 25? You'd be really surprised. We talk to thousands of people a year with my team. And I would say this is probably 98% of every person we talk to has money sitting in a bank or somewhere like a bank. And then they got credit cards over here and they haven't made the connection that, hey, wait a second, maybe I should take the money in that bank account and pay off that credit card. But the, and even if you think of that way, you haven't got to the banking concept. You haven't finished the infinite banking concept. So now let's just say we take 5,000 bucks from savings, and I'm just gonna come over, draw a circle, folks. Let's just do this so you have a visual. In your mind, I want you to draw a circle. Your money, the five grand that you have in savings is on the left side of the circle. On the right side of the circle is the opportunity or the leakage, leakage is that credit card. So imagine five grand, so I got five bills here going around the top part of the circle and I pay off Visa. Now, when I pay off Visa, my job is not done because if I'm gonna take back the banking functions in my life, I have to then, put some type of value on that five grand that came from my bank, which your bank is your savings for right now. So I, I now took five grand out of my bank to pay off their bank. So now wouldn't it just make logical sense if you were gonna be the bank to then take that $100 every single month you used to give away to Visa and change the name on the check. Instead of Visa, write your name. So now imagine the bottom part of the circle, every month, $100. The amount you used to give Visa comes around the bottom part of that circle and lands back in your savings account every month. What just happened? Well, right there, you started the process of taking back the banking functions in your life. Now let's just do a recap. 
You had five grand in the bank account, you owed Visa five grand. You just took the five grand from your bank and you paid off their bank. And then you paid your bank back at the same rate you paid Visa back at $100 a month. So every month you're building your bank back up at 100 bucks a month. But what you did is you recycled and recaptured the equivalent of 25% return on your money. How, how did you do that? Well, you were giving 25% away to Visa. You're now the bank and you now pay yourself back the same amount you paid Visa, which means for all of you listening to this, I'm doing this slow. You did not have to work any harder to do this. You didn't have to go to overtime. You didn't have to not see your family and you didn't have to take on any risk to do what I just told you, but you just made 25% on your money. That's right. Yeah. Why is everybody in this country not using that process? And then when you're done with the credit cards, you move on to the lines of credit. When you're done with the lines of credit, you pay your car off. And every time you pay off one of the debts to somebody else, you treat your money the same way you treated their money and you pay yourself back. So that's the process. Once people understand that, they're like, wow, that's really good. Then what I like to say is I like to say, okay, well, hold on. Let's do something really cool here. Let's change just one thing. And let's just change where that five grand in savings started. And instead of keeping it in someone else's bank, let's put it over here into our bank, but let's change the institution because let's take it out of traditional banks and let's put it with the same place the wealthiest families in history have put their money, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Walt Disney's, the Ray Crocs, the Joe Biden's, the McCain's, the JFK's. I, I could keep going on, but all pretty wealthy families. Well, what is that place? Giant mutually owned insurance companies and a product that you all know and probably don't like called a whole life insurance policy. But now before you guys get a weird sense in your mind of thinking, oh, that's terrible. Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman said that's a terrible place. I'm not talking about a whole life that your broke ass brother-in-law sold you. I'm talking about a specially designed and engineered whole life insurance policy where you're going to put your savings. It's going to give you liquidity of your money. Now, by just making that one change, we have done a couple things. We have now added the element of interest and dividends on an uninterrupted basis to your money. Now, that's still sometimes when I say that I found out people don't understand that. So we all understand airplanes, right? You've flown on an airplane, haven't you? Of course. Now, just imagine an air airline that advertises, fly our airline, we have a perpetual tailwind behind our planes both ways, whether you're going east to west or west to east, which means if you fly their airline, your chance of arriving early is almost guaranteed because you got a tailwind. We all understand a tailwind in an airplane. It means you go faster because you've got wind pushing your plane and then the thrust just goes, it's just more efficient. So what I just told you to do by moving your money to this specially designed and engineered whole life, I literally added a perpetual tailwind behind your money because it doesn't matter if the money's in the policy or if the money's taken out to pay off Visa and Amex and Discover and that car loan, you're still earning interest and dividends on all of it. It is the only place on earth that can pay you a guaranteed interest rate and give you dividends, not guaranteed, but they still pay them every single year and they have for hundreds of years uninterrupted and you can still use the money and the growth is tax free and it's private and it's protected against judgments and liens. Oh, and if for some reason you happen to die a little too early, a death benefit is paid to your family. And if you don't value that, then well, I, don't, I don't know what planet you're from. Yeah.
Okay, so th- that's an incredible breakdown. There's, there's, a, there's a lot I want to try and unpack there for people. So first off, actually, first off, wh- why do you think, to me, all of this is like such a no-brain. It, it, it does require like rethinking, right? Re- kind of rewiring the way you think about like bank. Because we grow up, this is what we know, right? We grow up, we go to school, they don't teach us anything. You put your savings in a bank. And, you know, you, you get your credit and, and that's just what we know. That's what society is, is kind of, you know, built on. So it does require a bit of like reworking the, the way you, you think about things traditionally. But aside from that, why do so many like few people, including people in the insurance industry, they know what a whole life policy is, but they don't know this concept and like the utilizations of the concept, like very few professionals air quotes, like actually know about this. Like, why is that? It's easy. I mean, the easiest way for me to explain it is why all the years I was a financial advisor and I was a pretty high level advisor for 16 years, not once. And I knew what whole life was. I absolutely knew what it was. How come I was never once shown this? I was never once taught this. Why would that be? Why is it that your financial advisor doesn't know about it? Or if they do, they say they do just because they're trying to sell you something. It comes down to a simple thing. Number one, I mean, this concept and the way that we design these whole lives has always been kind of reserved for the wealthy. Not that it's only available to the wealthy, but for the longest time, it was only talked about in the upper echelons. Okay. And then Nelson Nash did a really good job in the late nineties, early two thousands of bringing that concept with his book, becoming your own banker. You have mentioned that and bringing it down to a, a relatively general level where most people out there can understand this. And you're right. Once you understand what I just said, like, you're just like, well, why wouldn't everybody do this? Then comes the hardest part about that question. It comes down to why you get the advice that you get when it comes to money. And I will tell you why it's because somebody else is getting paid to give you that advice. Not, not sometimes, but all the time, the advice your advisor gives you almost 99% of the time is because they get paid to give you that advice in one way or the other. They're either selling you a product, they're making a commission, or they're charging you a fee. So now, now that we understand why advisors do what they do, and how do I know this? I did this for 16 years. I'm not proud to say that, but that's just what we were taught. So it is what it is. Okay. It's my prior, prior life. Go to your financial advisor and say, Hey, listen, I just heard this great podcast. They told me about this specially designed and engineered whole life that can be designed. And then this process that I can then use called the infinite banking concept. If I want to set this up, can you help me? Now, what your advisor will most likely say is, oh, absolutely. Because now they want to be the smart one. And then when you hang up, they're going to go research it. And they're like, oh, it's just a whole life. Yeah, I can sell you a whole life. But what what you then would have to go and say to your advisor is, okay, great. Yes, it's a whole life. But they said it was specially designed and engineered whole life. Oh, yeah. The advisor says, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, sure. The advisor, you then should ask them and say, yes, but I was also told that you have to reduce your commission by 60 to 90% so that I, as the advisor, or I'm sorry, so that I, as the client, have 60 to 90% more money to use immediately. Can you do that? Usually the advisor will say, oh, I can't give up. I can't give you a part of my commission. And the advisor is correct, but they're not giving you their commission. They're building and engineering the policy, the whole life policy, so that it pays less commission. 
And because it pays less commission, the insurance company doesn't care who gets the money. If the advisor gets the money, great. The advisor gets a bigger commission. And if, if it's designed so that the client has more cash value, then the client has more cash value. The insurance company doesn't care, but somebody's going to get the money. So in what I just said, you would have to have advisors and you'd have to have agents and financial services service professionals that all want to give so that you, the client can get. And unfortunately the industry is not built like that. Mm -hmm. So why haven't you learned about this? Because no one wants to take a 60 to 90% cut in their pay. I'm not sure if you're able to answer this in in like a simple way people can understand, but when you say uh, especially designed and engineered policy, like what does that mean compared to like a traditional policy? Like why is it different? Yeah. Yeah, So I'm not going to get into all the the words that go into this, but I just want you to imagine, or just logically just think about it. When you buy a whole life insurance policy and you think of it's expensive, you think it's a high commission product. If you've been paying attention to Dave Ramsey or anyone else, well, why would that be? Well, because whole life has a death benefit, right? So if it's expensive, it's because the cost of the death benefit is high, simple, right? And what does Dave Ramsey tell you to do? He tells you to buy term insurance. Why? Because it's cheap. Term insurance, cheap, whole life expensive. Great. So specially designed and engineered. What does that mean? Well, if I understand those two things, which all of you do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to then take the death benefit on the whole life and I'm going to put it at the lowest possible level. So I'm going to literally reduce that expensive death benefit down to the lowest level I can. And I'll explain what the lowest level is in a moment. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the client, I'm going to say, how much money do you want to put into this policy in a premium deposit? Because now I'm actually trying to get the client to understand that we're not buying something, we're making deposits into something. You got to change your mindset. Because if you think that you're, you know, I hate it. I hate it when people say to me, well, how much does that cost? Or, you know, when can I stop paying? This is the word. When can I stop paying premiums? And I would say, first, if that's the way you think about this, don't ever do this. And our calls, our call can just end right now because you're not paying, you're making deposits. Would you ever want to stop making deposits into your bank? The answer is always no. I always want to make deposits in my bank. Well, this is your bank. So why would you ever want to stop making premium deposits? So now once we understand how much the client wants to deposit, what we're going to do is now we've got to take one from Dave Ramsey and we've got to say, okay, to put that much money in the policy, what we got to do is we've got to meet the IRS code. We got to meet the code to make sure that this thing stays a life insurance policy. And that is called the MEC-7 payroll. Don't get into that. It's the only term I'm going to give you. And what that means is the government or the IRS, however you view them, separate or the same, is going to require that we have X amount of death benefit on that whole life policy to support the amount of deposits you want to make, right? So that it can be called. It makes sense. So specially designed and engineered means the government and the IRS does not say that we need to have a certain amount of whole life death benefit. They just say we need a certain amount of death benefit. So the insurance companies will allow us to put a term rider, that cheap, inexpensive life insurance. We can put a term rider on the policy, which gets us to that level that the IRS wants. So now we have literally reverse engineered a whole life. We have made it. So now it's very inexpensive to operate. The cost of insurance is very inexpensive because it's mostly term insurance with the way we design them. And it gives us the ability to stuff a whole bunch of money into a machine, into a mechanism, a whole life policy, that allows us to earn a guaranteed interest rate plus dividends, which gets you anywhere on a gross return of about 5.2 to 6% in today's world. That to me is a winning solution. And that to me is design and engineer. It's just like a race car. You know, if you took a Ford Focus 
off the shelf or off the car dealership. It's not a very exciting car. But while Ken Block was racing for Ford, you know, God rest his soul, when he was, he didn't have a regular Ford Focus off the shelf or off the lot. He had a specially designed and engineered Ford Focus. And that darn thing went 130 miles an hour sideways in full control. You've seen his videos. So why can't we, we can understand a car. So why can't you understand that we can design and engineer a whole life to do the same thing? Yeah. <laughs> Love it. So I have a question for you. So I know you mentioned like insurance companies, they operate differently uh, than banks. They're not on the fractional reserve system. Uh, I, I think they're like one-to-one -one with, with deposit. Austrian right? economics. Yeah. Uh, so given like the, where we're at right now in the economy, in the world, like I, I feel like there's, there's a massive shift happening globally, like the, the monetary system and the economy and all this. So do you think there's, there's any going concern for insurance companies? For example, like I know a lot of, I'm in Canada. Um, generally I think they operate the same, but you know, for example, a lot of insurance companies, they own a lot of say commercial real estate. Um, and you know, we're seeing now with, with the rise of remote working, a lot of these commercial buildings are vacant. Like I think the, uh, I read an article, San Francisco, I think it's like 30%, uh, vacancy for commercial buildings. So if, if a lot of insurance companies own a lot of these assets, which are not being utilized the way they were, like, is there any situation or hypothetical scenario where insurance companies, um, like go under or not around? Yeah. So it's a great, great question. And let's, I mean, let's just compare it almost like apples for apples. Like we just saw what's happening in the banking industry. It's lack of liquidity. Why? Because of a run on the bank. So what would be the equivalent of a run on the bank to an insurance company? A bunch of people start dying. Okay. So there's mass amounts of people dying and the insurance companies have to create liquidity to pay those death benefits. So a run on the bank is the same as mass, mass mm. deaths. And I hate to be morbid about it, yeah. but like, so let's go back to the pandemic because it's the most recent thing where that potentially could have been a situation. So during the beginning era of COVID and when we really didn't understand it, insurance companies did go into defense mode thinking, oh my God, if a ton of new people start dying, our mortality risk is going to go up and we're going to have to create liquidity to pay out these death benefits. Now, insurance companies are very liquid. You can look at any balance sheet of any giant mutually owned insurance company. They're, they're very liquid. But if mass amounts of people died, sure, that would hurt an insurance company and, and force them to maybe have the same insolvency problem. It would take a lot more than it would with a bank because they just have a lot more assets and money. So it would not be the commercial real estate portfolio of, a, of an insurance company that took them down. Matter of fact, insurance companies, that's, that would even, that'd be like a, a fly landing on your head. You're just like, ah, that's annoying. That would be the equivalent of what, you know, the, the commercial real estate you know, problems will be for the insurance companies because insurance companies don't need the liquidity. They don't need to sell those buildings. They, they, the rents are sure are nice and it helps their balance sheet and improves the dividend, but they don't really rely on those because Insurance companies, by the nature, people are making premium deposits and paying for insurance products and other things. And that's how they're making their money. And people are going to continue to pay for those unless they stop, unless they die. And then it flips and the insurance company has to pay the families for the death benefits. So that's the only risk you have is if something catastrophic happened that killed a lot of people. I mean, listen, I guess the only thing in my mind, and I'm, I, mean, I don't even want to put this into the universe, but like a nuclear war. Like that yeah. would not be good for insurance companies. Okay. But that makes it sense. Wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. be good for banks either. Wouldn't be good for any of us because we yeah. might not be here. 
I, I've asked this question to a few people and, and you're the first one to to have that answer in the sense like comparing it to like the run on the bank. So it's like you would say the biggest going concern is if there's just like some catastrophic event where there's like massive uh, excess deaths. Right. And just so you all know, you know, contrary to what some people saw in the news, which is the fake news, there was not an increase in death benefits because of COVID. I know there was like one news station that got a hold of one of the companies we work with. They were talking to the president. The president said, yes, we've seen an increase in death claims on the group insurance side, which is, you know, companies buying life insurance on their families, which makes sense because there's no real underwriting. It's guaranteed issues. So there's sick people. There's people that are unhealthy in there. In the regular basket of life insurance, underwritten cases, like those people wouldn't have gotten insured anyway. So that was the only place that saw a higher amount of death benefit claims. The regular life insurance world, and don't hold me to this because I don't have factual data, but from what I've heard just going around, it was actually less deaths. So I was going to ask you about that. I've been, I don't know if you've heard of reports and people talking about just excess mortality in general, uh, aside, put insurance, put insurance aside, but just like excess deaths, um, happening around the world. Yes. Like, have you seen anything like this? There has, I think the famous one was one America. Th- that's or, the company I'm talking that's about. Yeah. Talking that was, about, yeah. but that was because of the group business. Okay. That wasn't the regular pool of underwritten business, which they actually had less deaths, but across the world, there has been a tick, an uptick in deaths. So, then yeah. you got to ask why. And you can go right to the presidents or the actuaries of the insurance companies and they can pinpoint it and tell you why. There's an aging population. That is it. People mm-hmm. are getting older. And because people are getting older and baby boomers are getting up to that age where, yes, some of them are passing away. It has nothing to do with cancer, or heart disease or anything else. It's just mortality. I mean, when we get older, our chance of dying goes up. And across the world, I don't care if it's Japan or China, everywhere, maybe not India, but everywhere else has a rising population or um, mm-hmm. aging population. Yeah. And yeah. that's why you're seeing a little bit of a, an uptick in mortality. It's not for any other reason than just normal course of life. Yeah. Okay. So but that's so good that you brought sense. up that one America report. Yeah. Cause that's the one I was referring to where they, they had okay. the president, but they, I've talked to that president. I, I know him and they took that story and they, they spun that story. They made it sound like, you know, more and more people are dying and there's more death benefits and insurance companies are are scared of this. No, no, no. He, he said they, t- they took my story, which was fact. You know, the group insurance business saw a higher mortality uh, risk, but the other business didn't. And they didn't say, well, you know, can you define that? They just said, nope, more people are dying because of COVID. They, they came up with their own narrative. And you know how that goes. Yeah. Once something goes public in the news, it's hard to retract it. Even if they did, people only heard what they wanted to hear. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So back to, back to infinite banking, right? Like what are, what are some of the use cases and like practical use cases that, that you're utilizing it for like in your everyday life? (laughs) Like, yeah, like where where to start. This is is really cool because just this morning we and myself and my team went out and we recorded a case study, which will be available on YouTube in about a week to two weeks. And it's about the newest thing I'm doing. So I use infinite banking for everything. I use my policies for everything. When my business here needs capital to do like a big, we haven't needed it in a while, but I'll use my copy machine. Instead of leasing my copy machine, like most businesses do, I bought the copy machine and I I figured out how much the lease payment would have been, 190 bucks every single month. 
And I just pay that 190 back to my policy instead of paying it to some leasing company. I have two really nice vehicles. You know, me and my wife drive nice vehicles. Both of those vehicles are bought and paid for by my infinite banking system, my banking system. And every single month, I still make a monthly car payment. My car payment's like $1,892 a month. But that doesn't matter how much my car payment is because the car payment comes back to my policies, which means every monthly payment I make for my car is $1,892 more I have in my account, which includes interest and principal. So not only do I use it for my cars, but I can very accurately say that for every single car my family, me and my wife buy, we get all the money back for every one of those cars, no matter what. And I don't have to sell the cars. Now, just let that sink in, folks. I get all the money back for every car I buy, drive, and own, and I never have to sell the car. And if I do sell it, it's like gravy on top. Yeah. I do a lot of lending. So, you know, I used to buy a lot of real estate and flip real estate, but today I'm truthful in saying this. I hate real estate. I hate the government and what they've done to landlords after the pandemic. And I want nothing to do with owning real estate. So I've sold most of my real estate off and I, I got a lot of money when I sold it off. So I then said, all right, well, I got this money. What am I going to do with it? I paid all my debts off already using infinite banking. I, my cars are bought and paid for with my infinite banking. So now what I do is I lend my money. I do exactly what a bank does every day. I underwrite real estate deals for commercial projects like development projects, some short-term flips, some rentals. And when they need money, I lend them money in first secured position, just like a bank. I do exactly what a bank does. And they pay me a monthly payment. I charge a high interest rate, 12 to 15%. But just today, that case study I did. So because I see some risks coming in real estate, I've been kind of not backing off of private lending, but looking for diversify, like a way to diversify. So I got this guy, right? We all understand equipment and we understand that equipment runs this country in one way or the other. And I got this guy who owns this company and they buy forklifts. Now you all know what a forklift is, right? It's that thing you sit in and it's got that thing that goes up, down and goes sideways and it lifts heavy things. So that's the business he's in, forklifts. So I got talking to him because he, he had me come to his office about setting up nonetheless, infinite banking policies. And I asked him how he was going to use it. And he said, well, right now we put money in the corporate bank account and we buy these pieces of equipment and then we refurbish them. They buy used, it's like flipping houses, but flipping equipment. They buy used equipment. They have a whole shop, which you'll see in the video that refurbishes these things. It's unbelievable how they do it. And then they resell a refurbished forklift and they, they sell it like half hmm. of what a brand new one would cost, but it looks brand new. So it's a yeah. good business model. And he said, well, I don't know. I watched your videos and it made sense. I'll put my money in the whole life. I'll take the money from the whole life. I'll buy the forklifts and we'll resell them. And we'll put the money back in the policy and we'll rinse and repeat. And I got talking to him. I said, what's the biggest challenge you have with your business? And he said, well, I mean, we have a lot of demand for forklifts. And, you know, during the pandemic, we even had a higher demand. And during recessions, we have an even higher demand because in wartime, well, guns and ammo needs to be lifted and equipment needs to be lifted. And masks and all that stuff needs to be lifted. So we have a unique business where people need our product no matter what the uh, economy is doing. And he said, the biggest struggle we have is we can never, we never have enough inventory. We never have enough lifts to supply the demand. So people are calling us all the time. We got to put them on a waiting list. And I said, so what would solve that? He said, well, if we had more money to buy more lifts, I guess that would solve it. I said, well, what if I paid for the lifts? Said to him, I said, well, what if I came in and instead of you guys using your money to buy the lifts, I use my money and I buy the lifts and I become the owner of the lift. 
but the lift never leaves your facility because I don't want that lift in my garage. Like you guys just do what you do with it, but I own it. And then when it's done and you guys sell it, let's figure out a split. Like what's a split that makes sense. If it's all my money and I'm putting the, I'm taking the risk on buying the equipment that you do, what, what would be a good split? And we came up with an arrangement of 60% to them because they're doing all the work, 40% to me. I do nothing but buy the equipment. I own it the whole process. They refurbish it, they remarket it, and they sell it. And when it sells, I get paid my money back plus 40% of the profit. I started doing this. It's, it's unreal. It's silly. Crazy. And I today like I went to their, their factory and their shop, which is like 36,000 square feet. And we actually looked at the last forklift I just bought. It was a mess. Like we got video of it. It's all banged up. And then like you'll see in a couple of weeks, we're going to go back when it's all refurbished. It'll look brand new like the other ones that were in the shop. That's cool. And that's what I'm doing now. <laughs> that's nice. You know, it's one of, it's a saying, right? Like um, opportunity finds those with access to capital. Bingo. Right. Um, that, yeah, that's, that's the key. Uh, I'm curious to hear, I remember last time we spoke, like you were, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were like definitely into real estate a lot, right? So why, why, why are you uh, shying away from real estate now? Can you dive into that? It's, it's really, well, first let me, let me quantify where I live. I live in Buffalo, New York, and I don't know how many of you really pay attention, but New York is a terrible state, awful state. And during the pandemic, it became very evident that landlords of property in New York have zero rights. The tenant has all the rights. So let's just say I got my ass handed to me during the pandemic. I had, I can't even count how many tenants just stopped paying me rent. Why? Because the government said they didn't have to pay rent. And I had zero recourse. The courts weren't open. They wouldn't even hear cases. They got so backed up. I couldn't evict a client or a tenant. So I just had a whole bunch of people living for free. And the only way I could get them out of my property so that I could resell my properties is I had to pay them a lot of money. I'd have to go to tenants and bribe them and pay them big chunks of money, thousands of dollars, just to give me the keys back and get out of my property. And I did that because that's how, that's how yeah. just the point I got to. So why am I sour on real estate? Probably because I live in the wrong state and most mm -hmm. of my real estate was here. But the second thing is, is I just got sick of dealing with contractors stealing money and having to sue them. I got sick of contractors like working when they wanted, not when I wanted them to work. Like I'm hiring them and they just show up and they do crappy work. I got sick of building inspectors acting like, you know, like God, you know, and just making everything difficult. And then when the pandemic hit, that was just the, I guess, just the nail in the coffin. Just what I went through then just ruined it for yeah, me. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't ever want to be in real estate. I don't want to own real estate again. I'm never not going to be in real estate. But the thing I've found is since all those things I just described are what I dislike, there's a lot of other people that like that. So if they like that and they want to deal with that stuff, well, they need money. And you just mentioned opportunity finds the people with money or money, however you said that, like I got the money. So when people want to borrow money, I'll lend it to them. I created an entire community called privatemoneyclub.com just for that. And I lend a lot of money on a lot of real estate deals, but I get to pick and choose which ones I lend on. I never have yeah. to deal with tenants. I never have to deal with building inspectors and I never have to deal with anything like that's on the property. Makes sense. So it begs the question, like, are, are you, why are you still in New York? <laughs> Gosh, that would be the billion dollar question. <laughs> uh, let me give you the answer. Uh, my mom gave up so much for me when I was growing up and folks, we didn't get into my backstory, but just listen to 
any of my other podcasts or other videos and you'll hear it. You know, my mom is what I would call my unconditional one, but I am an only son and I am the only thing my mother has in this world. Truth be told, that's it. So now I also have an almost three-year-old daughter and my mom and my daughter are best friends, Mm. literally best friends. So selfishly, I could just pack up and go to somewhere like Salt Lake City or Carolinas or Florida where I'd be able to do a lot more business and I'd be in a much friendlier state for the business that I'm in. But that would require me being selfish and taking my daughter away from my mom. And deep down somehow, I don't know if it's God has told me this, but I know my mother wouldn't make it. And that is not a trade-off I'm willing to make. I will grit my teeth and punch the wall and say how much I hate New York, but I will never, ever leave my mom. And, you know, someday she'll go, you know, she'll graduate and go on to a better place. And then you mark my word, man, I'm out of this. Yeah, no, (laughs) I hear you. Okay. Um, I want to ask about your, your policies specifically. So like, are, are you depositing? So, you know, you, you talk about like premiums, think of them like you're depositing money into your savings account type of thing. Um, so are you depositing like essentially all your income or is like a ratio you, you put into yeah. your policy compared to your like traditional bank account or? Well, I don't keep much money in traditional bank accounts at all. I, I actually cringe when I see more than like 25,000 in any bank account. And that's even a lot, but that's just, you know, you gotta keep about six months worth of your expenses in, in a bank. So I have my, my money and it's not a lot, okay? So the bank money in traditional banks is not a lot, but I have it spread over oh God, three different banks. I got a community bank, which I love. I've got a commercial bank, which I don't love. And I got a credit union, which whatever. And I have money spread between all three of them. So if I ever needed money quickly, I could just get in my car and I could go right up one street, I could stop at each bank and I could take all my money out. Okay. Cause I don't have a lot in there anyway. Mm-hmm. So my income, you know, I'm, I, I do very well. I'm blessed. You know, I, my income is very high, uh, but my income, when it comes in, it very quickly comes into the bank accounts and very quickly goes out because I sweep as much of the money that comes into my bank accounts, into my policies or I make sure that money goes out to work somehow. So the only thing I do with my policies is I keep a very close eye on, you know, and it's a circle and I've got those bank accounts. When those bank accounts breach a certain level, which is about $35,000, when I'm over 35,000, I watch them. Okay, I'm almost like put a flag on them. And if they remain at that level, that higher level, and they keep creeping up, that means I gotta start another policy. So then I'll start another policy, go through underwriting, and then I'll take whatever that amount is above my threshold, which I like to stay about 25 to 35 grand, and I'll sweep that amount every month, because usually it's a monthly problem. Every month I'll sweep it into another policy. That's why I have nine policies now. But I have okay, nine so, of okay. Yeah, I have nine of my life. And I've been doing this for a long time. So it's not it's not a race to have a number a lot of policies. It's just I want more money going into my banking system instead of theirs. So yeah. I, I need to okay. keep increasing that. I also have one on my daughter, three on my wife and two on my mom. So we have a lot of policies in our family. Okay. So I was going to ask you next, like how many policies do you have? So you, you, you'll probably have more as you keep crossing that like 35,000 threshold. So, so, so that's how you uh, monitor when to create a new one. Yes. When you just have like too much money in the banks. Yeah, because I and also remember I mentioned I have numerous bank accounts. I, I I keep them segregated. So each one of my bank accounts is for a different purpose. Like my community bank, the majority of the banking that I do there on a personal level is my trust and foundation. So 
we have two trusts, the business trust and a family trust, and then we have a foundation. So that's all with that community bank. So I keep that business vertical there. Then my business um, bank accounts are with the commercial bank. So I keep all that in, in that bank spread out among, God, I think I have like 26 bank accounts. I know it's a nightmare, but I have a full-time bookkeeper, so I'm not doing that. About 26 accounts with that commercial bank, all business accounts. And then the, the community bank would be like my personal stuff. That would be just my my regular bank account. And then I also have what's called a segregated bank account there, which is just a bank account. The only thing that goes through that account is activity from my policies and the amount of money that they're making. It, you know, Money goes from loans into that and back out to work. And then from where it's working back into it and back into the policy. So it's just a circle. And mm -hmm. I can, the reason I use the bank account is because you have to, but it keeps books and records. So at any time I can go back very easily on a bank statement and I can say, okay, that's how much money I lent Chris Rude. Great. He's paid me every month. Oh, he missed that payment. Hey, Chris, you know, for some reason I don't have last month's. Oh yeah. It's because we're selling it. We're in escrow. I didn't want to pay it out. I'll just pay it all at closing. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, so you, you obviously help a lot of other uh, clients and, and people uh, setting up policies, utilizing them. Any, any other like unique use cases that you've seen uh, investors utilize policies for or any other practical uh, case study? Well, unique, I've seen a bunch recently. Um, you know, just we have over 7,000 clients, so you see a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, the majority of our clients, surprisingly, but not surprisingly, use the policies to pay off debt. That's the majority of what yeah. our clients are using it for. We also have a large amount of our clients using it to buy real estate or to lend on real estate. But as of recently with some, you know, some new things coming into the world of investing, like you got Airbnbs, we got a bunch of, I got a whole group of policyholders that use their policies just to finance Airbnb purchases and rehabs. And then as of recently, uh, Turo. So we all know of Turo, like the car thing. So because our system allows people to get all the money back for all the cars they ever buy, drive and own, I've got, it's just a handful of clients that have started policies, big policies, and they put a lot of money in and then that money gets moved out to buy cars. And then they just rent the cars through Turo and they take the rental income from Turo and they roll it back into the policies. And I think it's, I did a case study on this. There's this guy, Jason Stewart. Uh, I did a whole YouTube video on this. I mean, he had a Lamborghini Huracan. He had a Escalade. He had a, I think it was it a McLaren. Dude, he had all sorts of cool whips. And he basically uses this just to finance all of his car purchases. And he takes the, the rental, lives off some of it, and takes the difference and puts it back in. I thought that was really cool. Cool enough yeah. for me to do a case study on it. Yeah, nice. Just like the name of the infinite, right? There's there's an infinite number of of cases, really. Like it's you know wherever your mind takes you. Absolutely. That, I mean, like think of that equipment financing that I just talked yeah. about. Like, come on, that is Love completely little, that's like out of the norm thinking. And it was yeah. just like I've got money and I need to make that money go to work. So hey, uh, can I buy some equipment that you guys rehab? I mean, it just to me when I was talking to him, it just made sense. If that's your problem, let me solve your problem. I got some money. Let me yeah. buy some lifts. And we just started doing this. And I said, so if this works for me, I got some other friends and other clients that might want to do this. Can, can we do this for them? So we actually set up a new website that's going to literally have this case study where people, if they wanted to you know, look at it and, and talk to these guys about doing it, they can. And it's beyourownbank.com. It's not up and running yet, but pretty soon, like that's where you'll go if you like the equipment idea. Love it. I just like it because it's short term. Dude, they, they flip those forklifts that's like great, every yeah. 40 to 60 days. 
That's Real estate crazy. can be, take a year. I don't want to wait a year. How much does a forklift cost? Like once it's you would think it'd be a lot more. So like there's all different kinds, but the ones I liked were the ones that pick up three to fifteen thousand pounds. There's three different lifts. So three, five, and I think fifteen, or it's ten or fifteen. Those are the three I wanted to focus on because they just have the the mass appeal for most businesses. So like the littler ones, the three and the fives can range anywhere between twelve and twenty grand to buy and mm-hmm. rehab. And then they sell them for like thirty. So wow. the one I just did, I should, and again, I, it's not sold yet, so I can't tell you what I'm going to make yet, but I should make on the low side, 40% of my money. And the other thing nice. too, these guys said is they said, you know, Hey, listen, if we do this, the only thing we'd like is we'd like the ability to buy the forklifts back from you if we have the money. And I said, okay, yeah, but can we set a time frame? And they said, yeah, how about after 120 days, if we don't sell it, we'll buy it back from you from whatever, for whatever money you have into it. And I said, perfect. So after 120 days, it's almost like a hunt. I can't say this and don't hold me to this. Like I'm not making a claim, but it's kind of like a 120 day money back guarantee. So yeah. if I buy the lift and it doesn't sell in 120 days, they'll give me my money back. And then I just buy a different lift. But for them, it yeah. makes all the sense because they're not giving up the 40% in that lift and they can wait on it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's cool. Do, do you ever, uh, have you ever ran into the situation where your, like your policies have, have uh, like capped their cash value and you can't dig into them anymore? Like well, never, never capped them in terms of digging into the cash value, but do you mean like where I can't put any more money in the policies? Uh, where you can't like extract more money, like, you, you know, you, you, because I know in Canada here, you can only uh, leverage up to 90% of your cash value. Right? Same in the States. Yep. So have you ever gone to the point where you're like you're 90% on all yeah, of your policies? Like, like every month. I mean, I do a pretty yeah. good job of keeping okay. all my money working. But I've also here, you know, we've got uh, specific banks called, uh, you know, that, well, there's specific banks that specialize in cash value lines of credit. So what I've done to simplify my whole banking operation is I've got a, a bank that I use. And the bank gives me a line of credit against my policies. So all nine of my policies, I only have one checking account and one checkbook that I have to write checks for. And it controls all nine of my policies. But because I do it through a bank, they give me actually 95% access to my cash value instead of 90. So I've squeaked out an extra 5%. Now, I will say, you know, being in a bank doesn't make me feel good because the rates have gone up. And then I, we, I was at 7.5% on the loan interest rate. I complained to the bank. They brought me down to five, seven, five, which is in line with what the insurance companies are charging right now. Mm-hmm. So it's about the same. But in a year from now, if rates continue to keep going up, I might have to move it all back to the insurance companies, mm-hmm. which is yeah. pretty easy. But yeah, no, no, I've definitely, well, actually, I make a practice of trying to keep all my money in motion. Yeah, nice. My money's sitting in the policies. It's not earning the most amount of can. So I guess for everything, even like, you know, taxes every year, I'm assuming you're paying your taxes with your policy and like, no, I, I don't No, No, I pay, uh, I pay tax. I save money in a regular, uh, I have a brokerage account at TD Ameritrade and I use tre- treasury bonds surprisingly. Mm. And I save money in treasury bonds, uh, to pay my, my taxes. And this year was kind of interesting. Um, you know, I, I just did my 2021 taxes that not long ago and it was a big tax bill and I didn't want to sell my treasuries because obviously I just told you what happened to SV. BB, I would have sold them at a loss. So I was able to luckily pull money from some other places to pay the taxes. But in the future, the other thing, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but you know, I've followed also what the wealthiest families do on, from tax standpoint, because it's in the tax code. I just didn't understand it. And uh, I have 
somebody I know really well that turned me on to this because they're using it. And it's it's a complex trust structure. And, and like I'd mentioned earlier, a foundation. So my whole structure, I've got all my corporate entities up here, but I don't own any more than 1% of all of them. So I, I own 1% of all the companies that I have. The remaining amount is owned by an operating company. Okay, That operating company gets all the revenue from all my companies. So it comes into there and then any money that I don't need in that operating company to operate, to pay my salary, to pay bills, goes to my business trust. Because the business trust was set up for benefit of the operating company. So it comes into the business trust where I can lend money, I can buy real estate, I can do anything I would do in a business. Then whatever's not used there goes to my family trust. Now, my house is owned by my family trust. My daughter's schooling will be paid by my family trust. Anything that has to do with my, my household expenses is paid out of my family trust. And any money that's not used from all the other stuff in family trust is then at the end of the year sent to the foundation, which then I, you know, we're big animal people. So we love kitty cats, call it what it is. I donate a ton of money to save cats. So we work real closely with this place called 10 Lives and they save stray cats. And a lot of times they'll call us and say, hey, this cat's gonna die, it needs this surgery. We, we don't have the funds in the, the, in the foundation. Do you guys wanna save this cat's life? And, I don't know how many kitties we've saved the lives of, you know, 3,000 here, 5,000 there. We donate money to all sorts of different charities. But because I do all of that, I do the same thing that, uh, not to throw bad names, but the Clintons, the Gates, uh, the Buffets, they all do the same thing. And we just we tapped into it and we started using it. So now, you know, 2021 was a big tax bill, but moving forward, my tax bills are not going to be nearly as big as what they used to be. So cash flowing the tax bill is no problem. Yeah. Nice. At that level, I guess it becomes a, a big tax game. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's what it is, man. That's it's all in the IRS is. code. And if you just understand how they play the game and you just copy what they do, and yeah. that's kind of, I just play a big game of copying. I copy the banks, I copy the, the wealthies, you know, what they do with taxes and court and trusts and foundations. And that's all. Worked yeah. Out. yeah. Love it. So last uh, question I have then. So you, you mentioned a lot of your money you're putting to work, investments, uh, but, but your, your day-to-day like income, you're, 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 I know you're doing a lot of stuff online, like you're, you're, um, you're not an advisor, uh, you're issuing policies, I guess, for clients. Correct. Is, that, is that where the majority of your, your income comes so the majority, from? Well, I mean, yeah, for the businesses, I mean, it's yeah. the commissions off the policies that we right. sell because we do you know, we do about 300, 350 a month in, in wow. policies. Like that's the number of policies we're writing. Um, but my personal income, a lot of it just comes from me lending money. I mean, I get, hmm. I get a substantial amount every single month just from my lending activities of money going out and money coming back in. Um, we've also done a really good job of setting up affiliate relationships with lots of other people that benefit what we do. So we get affiliate checks to come in. But I mean, when it comes to it, you know, and I never would have understood this a long time ago, but I do now, you know, you'll, you'll make a certain amount in your life. And then anything more that you make doesn't add to your happiness. It doesn't really do anything to change your life. Cause like material things just don't do it for me. Like I don't wear Rolex watch. I don't wear watches. I'm not into that stuff. I don't wear fancy shoes. So like what really moves me is when I'm able to help other people change their lives. Hence the foundation. So, you know, I've gotten to a point like for, lots of reasons through hard work and just failing enough times where like I make a really, 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 well, I make a lot of money, I guess is an easy way to put it, but I don't need a lot of money. So all that money gets to go out and work for me doing good work. 
by solving other people's problems. And uh, I've been blessed to, to really get to that point. It's taken me 45 years to do it and lots of times of failing because I didn't focus on other people. I always focused on me, me, me and what I wanted. And as soon as I switched and changed that over to more of a giving nature of just wanting to do to solve other people's problems, then all of a sudden I started making way more money. And then when I started making way more money, I'm like, damn it, like I don't need way more money. So what do I do with all this? And that's when the foundation and all that stuff really started playing into it. My right. daughter is now kind of going to be groomed uh, through my TEDx talk, Rethink Money, a letter to my daughter on really how to understand money at a level that I was never brought up to understand it, but also so that she understands money and understands giving. So someday, you know, what her main function hopefully will be, I mean, can't tell her, tell you what my daughter is going to do, but hopefully she just wants to go out and do really cool things to solve people's problems with our foundation. And that would be a really amazing legacy that I could leave. I love it, man. That's amazing. Um, that's great. I, I feel like this episode is one of those where people might have to, uh, you know, re-listen to or rewind a lot of the concepts, uh, especially if you're new to infinite banking. Um, so let's leave it there. I'd want to be mindful of your time. I want to thank you again for, for you're the one who put me on this concept through the content you put out. So I would highly encourage anyone listening to, to, to follow you wherever you are and, and where can people find you online? Uh, where, where are you hiding on the internet? I'm not hiding. I'm not <laughs> hard to find. That's for sure. So the best place to always start is my website. Just go to chrisnoggle.com. A 90 minute video will pop up. Just watch that video. That's how I started. I know you watched that. And then the second thing, some of you like books, you can grab a copy of my book for free, Mapping Out the Millionaire Mystery. I actually have six books now. Um, but also a lot of people love YouTube and YouTube is the number one source for my content. So just go to at the Chris Noggle on any social channel, but YouTube you know, go on and subscribe to that channel. Such amazing content. That awesome. put up on there. Amazing. Chris, pleasure as always. Thanks again. Um, we should definitely do this again sometime and uh, continued success to you and all the best, man. Appreciate what you do. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care. Bye.